Okay, for the most part, it looks like everyone's finished with that exercise. So if you'll turn your attention this direction, please. So um, a couple of words of warning for, the, for today. Um, for the last, like, two, three days, I've had this kind of low-grade fever. Anybody else sick right now? Raise your hand so we know who to stay away from. Okay, good. Um, so I'm just going to warn you, if I'm not giving, I'm giving you the fist bump today. I'm not giving any handshakes. I don't want to get anybody sick. Um, but yeah, low grade fever. And you know, everyone, whenever you're sick, you always like to tell people you're sick so they feel sorry for you. So this is why my way of doing that right now. So, um, so, uh, if I start to get a little sweaty up here, um, like a TV evangelist, you'll know why, uh, today. So um, we're continuing today our series. We started it last week in the book of Revelation. So if you guys could turn to Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to intermix like discussion throughout today. We have three sets of questions today. So uh, turn to Revelation chapter 1. So Revelation, a couple of um, review from last week. Revelation um, is one of the most confusing books of the Bible. So we chose to do that book when you were in the last moments of your school semester, when you don't want to think about anything deep, right? And you want shallow, 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 because it's springtime, it's almost summer. So we decided to do Revelation chapters 1 through 3. And so the first three chapters, though, are a little bit less confusing than the rest of the book. Uh, so some, some review. So who wrote Revelation? John. Uh, the Apostle John. So where was John when he wrote Revelation? What? Patmos, the Isle of Patmos, which is off the coast of what country? Turkey. Turkey. Off the western coast of Turkey. Now, <clears throat> when John was writing Revelation, what had already happened to the rest of the disciples? They'd all been killed for their faith. They were all, most of them were martyrs. And they tried to kill John as well. How'd they try to kill John? They tried to boil him alive in hot oil, which is not at all a good day. So they couldn't kill him. They send him to Patmos, the Isle of Patmos. So while there, John has a vision. And the the book of Revelation is that vision that he has on the Isle of Patmos. From that vision, he writes Revelation. Now, um, if you remember the vision from last week, we we, we talked about um, John is... It says he is in the spirit on the Lord's day, which maybe may mean Sunday, and he's just probably praying and talking to God. And then in that moment, Jesus shows up. Can you imagine Jesus showing up in person or in like a vision to you while you're having your time with God? So he's having his his uh, having some time with God basically, and and uh, Jesus shows up and he sees this crazy vision. Now, I know whenever you look at Revelation, especially a book like Revelation, and you see some crazy things, I'm always going to assume there are some skeptics in this room. And I love the fact that if you're a skeptic, I love the fact that you're here. I love the fact that you're coming here and want to hear about Christianity and and the gospel and Jesus. Um, So my goal here is always to try to address some of your questions, some of your concerns. So um, there's two kinds of skepticism that I think we can jump into when you read crazy visions like you see in Revelation. The first reaction is this. If God's real, then why doesn't he reveal himself? That's how many people ask. Many people ask the question, if God's real, 
then, then why doesn't he reveal himself? And so um, that's the first uh, skeptical question that many people have. If you can go to my next slide, that'd be great. It's up there on the screen, Seth there at the back. Um, if God's real, then why doesn't he reveal himself? And you look at the Bible and you say, okay, if this stuff is true, which I believe that it is, then we would say that he has revealed himself in many and various ways. One of his biggest revelations, of course, is just simply creation. Just the fact that we're here shows um, some revelation about himself, according to Romans chapter 1. The next kind of skepticism people get into is you really believe these crazy stories of God revealing himself? So you can see how there's like, you can't really win sometimes with the skeptic, right? The skeptic, sometimes you really can't win because on the one hand, they'll say, if God's real, then why can't he reveal himself? On the other hand, they might say, if they, if they hear about revelation like in the book of Revelation, they might say, well, you really believe these crazy stories of God revealing himself? And so you can see that, that mankind can often have a skeptical heart that is just inclined and bent towards unbelief. No matter what they're exposed to, no matter what they hear, no matter what they read about, um, we are often bent towards unbelief. And I think this shows us a really important point, that mankind has a heart problem, not an information problem. Mankind has a heart issue, not just an information issue. And so the issue is not just if we could just see more, hear more, experience more, then we would believe. The reality is, no, God's revealed himself already, and many did not believe. So what's crazy is whenever you look at the Gospels, there were many people that saw miracles happen firsthand. But did everyone believe when they saw those miracles? No. The nation of Israel, led from Egypt, they saw miracles firsthand. But did everyone believe and really put their faith and trust in God when they saw those miracles? No. And so we see all throughout the Bible that mankind doesn't just have a, an information problem. He has a heart problem. He has this inclination, this bent towards unbelief. And so um, we're seeing in, in, in the book of Revelation how Jesus reveals himself to John. In this uh, first three chapters, Jesus tells him to write a message down for seven churches that are all located in western, the western Turkey area, modern-day Turkey. And these churches all have different personalities. You ever been to a church, like, so TBC, we have um, sort of a TBC personality. I mean, I'm not going to get into what that is, but you can, you can kind of understand, like, there are certain churches that have personalities, right? We went to a church in New York City um, last year on our mission trip called Hillsong. And did that church have a different personality than TBC? Yeah? So every church has kind of its own little unique personality. And these churches all have their own personalities. And attached to those personalities are certain idolatries, certain sin issues um, attached to each one of their churches. And so Jesus challenges John. He writes these letters to these churches through John. And Christ's goal is to challenge each one of these churches, to encourage the churches, but also to challenge them in, um, in how they're living for Christ. And so our hope as we go through the series is that, is that as, we, as we see each one of these churches and what Christ is encouraging them about, but also how he's rebuking them, that you'll see yourself in these churches and you will also be drawn to repentance in the same way that Christ is drawing these churches to repentance. So with that, I want you to... Um, discuss questions one and two at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one and two. If, you're, if you don't have a discussion sheet, 
Come see me up here at the front. You should have one, though. All right, if you guys will turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2, actually. I think I said Revelation 1 earlier, but Revelation 2, verse 1. And we're going through just five verses today. So we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 1. And here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him, this is Jesus, the words of him, meaning Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so in Revelation, there can be some confusing symbolism. And so the words of him, him is Jesus. Um, what is Christ doing? It says he is, in this vision that John sees, it says he is, he is holding the seven stars in his right hand. Now, if you remember back to uh, chapter 1, the seven stars are, um, the, the, they are seven, uh, let me make sure I'm reading this correctly. So the seven stars are the seven angels that were talked about in the uh, Revelation chapter 1 vision. And there's some debate about what these angels are. Some people say these angels are actually not angels. They say they're in reference to the pastors that are in charge of these churches in Ephesus. Others will say that, no, these angels really just mean angels that are assigned to these seven churches throughout Ephesus. I'm going to go with just the basic literal meaning of when the Bible says angels, it means angels. So we'll, we'll go with that interpretation. And uh, so it says that Christ is actually holding in his hand like these angels that are being sent to these seven churches to kind of watch over these churches. So what else is Christ doing? It says Christ himself is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what are the seven golden lampstands? The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches in that part of Turkey. And so I think it's a really cool picture because it shows that Christ, most of us have this like distant idea of Christ. He's just kind of with his father and he's distant. He's not really intricately involved in the life of the church, but this passage so something i think really profound and it's this jesus is actively involved in the life of his church it says here he's walking among the churches he, he he's he's with them he's present with them as they're trying to reach the city of ephesus and this also is important because it says the churches are like this this lampstand and so this is really important because it shows that churches are to be a light to their city and to the world. The church is not meant to be a country club. The church is not meant to be a fun club. It's not meant to be just a gathering place for Christians to come and plan some activities, occasionally rent a charter bus, do some fun things, go on some tours. That's not what it means to be the church. The church is meant to be a lampstand that shines forth light in whatever city in which God has placed us. It's to be a light in the city where we are located. This is why at TBC we really try to um, pound the idea of mission over and over and over again. And I'll admit, as a pastor here, that mission can be exhausting. It's much easier just to gather up Christians and say, we're just going to plan some fun activities just to kind of entertain you for a little while while you go through school, and just to try to, you know, teach a little bit about Jesus, about the Bible. But the reality is the church's purpose 
is to be a lampstand in the city in which they are located. This is why we do things like impact, why we do things like minister with CTLC. This is why we do those kinds of things, because this is our mission as the church. I want to talk to you about Ephesus, the city of Ephesus that this church is located in. Ephesus was a leading city in that day. They had an ancient harbor. I've got a picture of modern-day Ephesus today. Looks like a nice place, doesn't it? I mean, they got, like, nice water. They got, like, a beach. They got, I mean, cruise ships come into Ephesus today. And so you can see this this place is just jam-packed, crowded along the side of the um, the harbor there. And um, so Ephesus today is, is kind of a nice place. Not sure what it was like much back then. But what do we know about cities today that are along the coast? Cities on the coast are almost always more diverse and a bit more cosmopolitan than cities that are jammed into the middle of a country, right? Why is that? Because historically speaking, they've always had people coming coming into the harbors and they've just always been more diverse. I mean, take New York City versus like Kansas City, Missouri, right? New York is a bit more diverse, we would say, than a place like Kansas City. Why? Because historically, it has always been close to water, always had people coming and going, and it's just a cultural, cosmopolitan melting pot. And so Ephesus was along the coast. It probably had a lot of diversity, a lot of things happening in that city. In fact, Paul planted a church there in Ephesus. He also came back there for two and a half years. In Ephesus, we also know there is um, this big amphitheater. Go to my next slide. There's a big amphitheater. And if you remember Acts chapter 19, it says that Paul um, was preaching the gospel, and eventually them preaching the gospel led to a riot in Ephesus. Now, what does Paul want to do when there's a riot? He wants to walk into the riot because he's Paul, and he's crazy. And so Paul wants to walk into the riot, And they believe this is the amphitheater in which that riot took place. And what I love about the Bible is that when the book of Acts says that Ephesus has a a theater that would seat about 20,000 people, you can actually go to the the city of Ephesus today, and you can actually see that place that is talked about in the book of Acts. And so you see, like, it's it's real. It's not some made-up thing. It's actually there for us to see. And so they had this amphitheater. Um, also in Ephesus, they were known for having this huge temple to the goddess Artemis. Go to my next slide here. This is a rendition of that. And this um, temple was the size of a soccer field. It's huge. 60 feet high, the size of a soccer field. And the goddess Artemis was someone that they worshipped in Ephesus. And they were known for activities like... um, prostitution at the temple. And so if somebody worshipped Artemis, which many people did, then um, they could go to the temple and as a part of ritual worship, was um, part of that was engaging with prostitutes sexually in that city. And so you can imagine this kind of city um, is a difficult city for the Ephesians to reach as they're trying to live out the gospel and trying to be a light in a city like that. And so what does Jesus say to this church? First, he gives them some encouragement. Look at verse 2. He says, this is Jesus to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So in Ephesus, there were some uh, false apostles, some false teachers, and Christ is commending them for recognizing false teaching, recognizing error in their doctrine and theology, and not falling for false teaching there in Ephesus. And so he gives them encouragement first. The first thing Christ encourages them about is he says, you have served faithfully. So this is not a lazy church. This is not a church where the pastor is having to say, all right, guys, let's, let's, let's try to serve each other. Let's try to um, drum up support for what we're doing here in the church. He says they have served faithfully. The second thing he says is that you care about holiness. Ephesus is not the kind of church that in spite of the city in which it lives, in which it exists, it's not the kind of place where they are making lots of cultural compromises. They're not the kind of church that is um, cratering to the culture around them. They are somehow finding a way to maintain their distinctive nature and their holiness in this city called Ephesus. You can think that um, Ephesus will be a hard place for a Christian, a believer, to live. And you can think of many cities today that would have that similar feel. What city would that be like today? I mentioned New York, maybe other cities on the coast that have that similar feel. A place where it's just difficult to be a Christian. You could say today, it's really any place, right? Where it could be difficult to be a believer. And so again, prostitution was legal in this place. This was not like, like you know, in our country... There are places where prostitution is more prevalent, or it might be even legal. But think about this. It is actually legal um, in the temple. Like So part of their spiritual nature as a, as a city involved prostitution. At least for the most part in our country, people would still frown upon prostitution, even if it's considered legal, say in a place like Vegas. We would still be like, yeah, that's probably a bad idea, right? But in this city, it was actually part of, like, it was tied into worship. That's how um, sort of far gone this place was as a city. They have 50 gods and goddesses that they would worship in their, in their worship rituals. The third thing that um, Jesus says to them, he, he commends them for not falling for false teaching. He encourages them and says, you have not, you have not fallen for false teaching. So, some Christians are susceptible to false teaching. This was not the church in Ephesus. So um, I mentioned a while ago just the nature of Ephesus as a city and how, how difficult it might be to live in a city like that at that time. And, um, you know, if you, I want to take a step back here and talk about how we as Christians, myself included sometimes, how we tend to view cities like I just described. Because if I were to take a survey, especially among your parents, maybe even among you, you like to visit cities, but you probably don't really have a love for the city. Like, I love just millions of people just jam-packed on the subway, and I just love that, right? Like, most of us don't love those kinds of things about big cities. But what we have to know, though, is that when Paul was on his missionary journeys— Paul cared deeply for the big cities of his day. He cared deeply because the church, you may not know this, but the church when it first began was known as an urban religion. 
It was not seen like it is today sometimes as some like backwoods, hillbilly, redneck religion. It wasn't seen like that. It was seen as an urban religion because it, 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 it sort of flourished in these big cities throughout that part of the world. And Paul, in his effort to reach the world, he knew he had to go after the cities because that's where the people were. And I want to challenge our perspective this morning because I know that for most of us, we like doing the once-a-year, week-long mission trip to New York City. We like that because it's contained. It's only a week. We enjoy it. Then we come back here and live our lives here in Temple, Texas. But if we are going to be people who really care about lost people, as Christians, we have to reclaim our passion and our desire to reach the cities of our country and the world. And I'm not saying that you need to move out of temple. I'm saying there's an aspect of temple. I mean, temple's still 70,000 plus people. Belton, you add that to that. You're getting close to 100,000 people. Still quite a few people here. It's definitely not New York City for sure. But there are aspects, if you, have a, if you despise kind of the city like, you're like, I don't like big cities. They just kind of annoy me. If your mindset is that, then there are still aspects of our city here that will also make you feel the same way. And um, I've been doing some reading about this, and there's been some guys I've read that have really challenged my thinking on this. I would love to see people leave this church one day, graduate from here from high school, and your passion, your desire is to go reach places like that. Because when you think about it like this, listen, if we really believe that each one of us are made in God's image, that every single human being is made in his image, then we should love cities because cities have the greatest concentration of people made in the image of God. The greatest concentration on the earth of image of Godness, if I can use that as a phrase, is located in these crazy populated places throughout our world. And so we can't just look at that and go, oh, it's just inconvenient. I just hate that. It's just so, it's so hard to live in a place like that. And I get that. I'm not saying you have to. There's some, there's some, I understand what your, what your reaction might be to this. But as Christians, we have to understand that we have to have a desire like Paul did to reach the cities of our day in our country and also in our world. So with that, I want you to go ahead and discuss uh, questions three and four at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions three and four. Okay, for the sake of time, we're going to move on to the next section here. Because we have a lot to cover still, and I want to get you out of here too late today. So um, look with us at verse 4 of Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 4, it says, So Christ has, has kind of set them up. He has given them some encouragement. But now comes the rebuke for the church at Ephesus. In verse 4 it says, But I had this against you, church in Ephesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And so here's the rebuke from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. And he basically is saying this to them. The rebuke, that, if you can summarize it, we'd summarize it this way. We would say that he is saying to them, you are all head, but you're no, you have no heart. You are all 
doctrine, your theology is correct, you are guarding against false teachers, but you don't have a love for me anymore, and you don't have a love for others anymore. You don't have a love for each other. You don't have a love for your city. You don't have a love for me. And so um, if you're going to summarize this letter, it would be, you're all head but no heart. And this is the rebuke from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. He is saying, the big deal with you guys is not external. Your main issue is not external. Like we're not, we're not seeing a bunch of dysfunction externally, but the big deal with you guys is internal. It's your heart. You don't have any love for me. You don't have any love for your city. You don't have any love for each other. And so there are some people that we all know, their lives are just outward train wrecks. These are, that's not these people. That's not their main issue. And so um, I want you to just, I, I mentioned the seniors last week. I want you to, you know, put yourself into a dorm room in your mind for next year. You'll be in a dorm room, possibly in a, in a city throughout our state or country or somewhere else. And I want you to imagine that you're going to church, you're serving faithfully, you've gotten plugged in somewhere in the community, you're living um, a holy life, you're living set apart from the culture that surrounds you, you're, you, you have right beliefs, but you're surrounded by people in a city who are completely living in sin. And I want you to think about what do you think you might struggle with besides the obvious temptation to participate with what they're doing, but what might be your other temptation if you're in a place like that? You might get a little prideful, a little self-righteous. You might start to think that um, maybe you're better than other people. You might start to think that, um, that maybe you deserve the love that God has for you because you're just living so right and so holy. And so you can see that your love for Christ might begin to wane because you're doing all the right stuff, but your heart for him is beginning to grow cold because um, of the way you're beginning to think about yourself. And this is where the Ephesians are. It's where they find themselves. The surface looks good, but it's hollow because there's no love. There's no love for Christ. And so I want you to see this next point. Write this down. Hit the next slide, if you will. When we begin to see ourselves as, as deserving of God's love, that, that love will stop flowing from us to God and others. When you and I begin to see God's love as something that we deserve based on our holiness and our right beliefs and how good we are in our minds, then that love will stop pouring out of you to God and to other people. You will become what we call a love collector. You just collect God's love and just you feel like you deserve it. And you become spiritually bloated because we lack love for God also for others. So I want to spend some time talking this morning about how can you and I become like the Ephesians in this sinful way? Like what are some pitfalls we might fall into? And if there's one letter out of these seven that I think Jesus would send to me personally, it'd be this one. This is the one. This is the one I think that probably most fits me and my personality. Um, so I want us to think through um, what are some ways we can fall into the trap with the Ephesians. The first thing I want you to know, if, if you like to read books about God but not the Bible. So sometimes I'm tempted because I talk to a lot of people that 
We like to talk about theology. We like to talk about doctrine and, and some, some deep issues. So I read um, a chapter in a book this past week on the topic of open theism. Do you guys know what open theism is? Most probably don't, right? A few of you might. But it's an important topic. But sometimes I find myself being drawn to these like heavier theological topics. You know why I do that? Because when I'm in a conversation with someone, I want them to think I'm smart. I want them to think that I know my stuff. And so I feel more drawn sometimes to those kinds of books, more so than the Bible itself. Man, that's convicting. That's really convicting. The next way that you might become like the Ephesians is this. Put my next slide up there. If our time with God consists of Bible reading, but we never pray. So you might actually be in the Bible a lot, but let's, let's be honest that um, you might read the Bible and you might see it as a study book for you, but you find it difficult to engage God through prayer because I'm going to admit to you, I think prayer is one of the hardest things for us as Christians to do. It is. It's really hard for us to do. Because it, it just, you're like, we're talking to God. Like, it's, it's like, we're going to relate to him. Because here's what, Bible reading is really, really, really important. But sometimes I go into like, you know, theology mode when I'm reading the Bible. And I'm not really trying to connect with God. I'm just trying to learn some information again so I can appear smart to someone else. But prayer is where all that is stripped away. And you're forced to just relate to God like a person. He's a person, right? You're forced just to talk to him like, you're, like you talk to someone else. And it, it feels like you feel like you don't have that crutch to lean on like you would if you're just reading a book about God or even reading the Bible with the wrong motives. The third thing I want you to see is if we see Christianity only as rules, not as a relationship. If you see Christianity only as rules, not a relationship, you are likely to become like the Ephesians. The fourth thing I want you to see is if we see Jesus as more of a concept rather than a person. If you see Christ more as a concept, like just an idea, as opposed to a person for you to relate to and to talk with and for him to be your savior and to be in a relationship with, you can become like the Ephesians. If we love truth more than people, if we love truth more than people, we are likely to become like the Ephesians. We love to speak truth. We're all about, you know, just, just letting the truth just hammer people, right? And, and we don't care about those that we're actually talking to about the truth. Then we're likely to become like the Ephesians. If people are an inconvenience to you rather than a mission field for you. Again, going back to the city idea, if you see like a bunch of people as just, oh, it's just a bunch of mess of people. Like it's, it's, it's inconvenience to me as opposed to a mission field for you. This is where I think we fall into that trap. And this is where I think many of you have encouraged me because what I've seen from many of you is that you don't desire to do just impact for a week and be done with it that many of you go back over and over and over again because you don't see people as inconvenient. You see them as, I want to reach them. And I'm encouraged by some of you um, in how you approach these kinds of things. The, uh, the last thing, if we tell others to repent, but we never do it ourselves. 
if we're always talking about like repent, 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 return to Jesus, but we never actually repent ourselves, even as Christians, turning away from sin, turning towards Jesus Christ, we are likely to become like the Ephesians. So if we can summarize this letter to the church in Ephesus, we can do it this way. We should guard our beliefs against false ideas, but we should not guard our hearts against loving people. You can see how the church in Ephesus, they cared so much about like doctrine and right belief and right living, which was a good thing. They set up guards for those things, which is a good idea. But what happened was that also caused there to be a guard against the people in their church and also in their city. And so it's very easy for us to fall into the same kind of trap. So often the personality that loves to talk like deep theology and deep ideas, so often that kind of person struggles with loving to be with people. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. Look at how Jesus tells them to respond in verse 5. So if this is you, because it's me, look how Christ says to respond. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's really harsh words, right? And so there are three things I want you to see in this verse. Here's the pattern. It's remember repent and do remember repent and do and so we can't we can't just say walk out of here and say well if that's what you struggle with you got to go do better just try to try to go try harder and do better he starts with remembering repentance always starts with remembering remembering who god is remembering the love that you once had for christ when you first came to christ this is why i encourage so many of you to to write like spiritual journals because when I go back and look at me writing about Jesus when I was 16 years old, your age, I look at that and I go, man, I don't feel like I feel that way right now. I feel like I've kind of lost some of that right now in my later years, right? And so it's good to record those things because you you can go back and you can remember the love that you once had for Christ when you first came to know Christ. And a way to keep that from from waning is, is going to be going back and remembering where you started and where you started with Christ when you were younger. So what is Jesus? Um, I think whenever you and I remember in this way, it sparks something new in our hearts for him in the present, in the here and now. And so um, he also talks about uh, repentance. So remembering leads to repentance. Repentance leads to actually a changed life, doing, action, right? This is a pattern you see in this verse. And so what does Christ say is going to happen if they don't repent? This is the scariest part of this whole section. Here's what he says. If you don't repent, Christ says he's going to snuff out their light. He's going to blow out their lamp. Just blow it out. Because you know what? You can call yourself a church. You can have the word church on your, on your sign out front. But Jesus is saying that if you're not living if your action isn't flowing out of a love for me as your Savior and your love for other people, your love for the city, then you can close up shop because you're no longer a church. You can call yourself a church, but you're no longer a church. If it's not rooted in a love for Christ, love for other people, we're no longer a church. And so he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to snuff out your light. One writer says this. He says, when those who call themselves the church of Jesus Christ 
cease to have love for God, love for one another, and a passion for making disciples as its first priority and become a group of gatekeepers, that community ceases to be the church. We stop being the church. There's a way in which we can still have programs and activities and so on, but if we don't have all of this rooted in a love, passion for Jesus Christ, we stop being the church even though we still call ourselves one. Man, this is convicting stuff. This is convicting stuff. Jesus says, you know, you can say all day that you've got, but look at all the things we're doing for you. We have solid beliefs. Like, we're not crazy. We have put together lives. Like, we're not, we're not doing crazy stuff. And Jesus says, I don't care. I don't care. If it's not being done out of a love for me, then you have ceased to be the church. And so as we think through all of this, there are two mistakes I think we can fall into, a reaction. If you feel like you're like me and you struggle with this kind of thing that the church in Ephesus struggle with, there are two mistakes that we tend to make in order to correct the problem. And here's what we do. The first thing we can tend to do is to stop caring about beliefs. That's a mistake. We stop caring about like doctrine and theology and beliefs and say, you know what? I feel like all this stuff, this 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 deep stuff kind of gets in the way of loving people, so I'm going to set this stuff aside and not care about it as much anymore so I can really love people. That's the wrong response. That's the wrong response. The second wrong response we often fall into is this, is to stop doing good works. If you feel in yourself that you don't have a love and a passion for Christ and you're doing things out of duty or like, you know, just because you're supposed to, many people say, you know what, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't feel like my heart's in it. So I'm not going to do that. And so we stop doing the good work. So we feel like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And in our culture, being a hypocrite is like the worst thing, right? And so we just stop doing the works because we feel like, I, I just got to wait around until my heart kicks back in again. And I think God wants us to keep doing the works, but repent while we do them and for our lack of love for him and for others and for our city. With that, I want you guys to go ahead and finish your discussion. Finish your last uh, three questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.